Well, this morning, we are concluding our study of the Gospel of John, and one of the reasons that I love preaching through books of the Bible is not only because of the breadth and the depth of what we learn, but I also cherish this moment, that final sermon when we bid farewell to a book that feels a bit like it's become a friend. When I first came to College Park and preached through the book of Colossians, my very first sermon series, I have a Bible in my office, the first preaching Bible that I used, and there are dark spots where my thumbs were in that text when I held that Bible, in large part because I was sweating so much because I was nervous to be the pastor here. My Bible, that Bible opens, it flops open to the book of Colossians. In my Bible now, The Gospel of John is well-worn. The pages are wrinkled. We began this series on September 8th, or 9th, rather, 2018. I believe this is the 54th message on the Gospel of John. And it's been a glorious journey. I have come to deeply, deeply love this book. I'm frankly sad to see it go. The book of John is important and it's foundational. In my very first sermon on this book, here's what I said about it. There are some books of the Bible which are foundational and essential because of their simplicity, their clarity, and their thoroughness. The Gospel of John is this kind of book. It is a masterful account of the life of Jesus, his teaching, his miracles, and the response of people. It's a wonderful book to study, whether you've been a follower of Jesus for years, if you're a relatively new Christian, and it's especially important if you're not yet a Christian. So this gospel is so, so helpful. The gospel of John begins at the very beginning. Here's how the gospel began. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John's aim from the very beginning is to show you who Jesus is. In verse 14, he says this of chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John writes these 21 chapters. We studied them over the last 18 months for the express purpose of us being able to see glory. I hope that there's been moments along our journey where you have seen things in this text and you have just stopped and said, wow, as you saw something new or from a different angle. John wants to woo you to see who Jesus is. His gospel is different than any other gospel. I've I've taught through the gospel of Matthew with its emphasis on the kingly nature of Jesus, but John is earthy. This gospel bleeds. It sings, it weeps. And John's aim is to reach everyone. You know the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So John's aim in writing is that anyone would be able to hear 
so that everyone would be able to receive. So in this final message, what I want to do is I want to help you understand how John ends this glorious book. I want you to see in particular three charges or exhortations that John gives through how he arranges the conclusion of his book. And those three exhortations, or these three charges, are these. Number one, that we would believe that we may live. Number two, that we would serve Jesus faithfully. And number three, that we would follow God's sovereign plan. Let's explore each of these. First, believe that you may live. That's the first charge or the first exhortation that John gives, and we find this in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. This particular text in chapter 20 is the back end bookend of two texts that talk about why John has written. John 3:16 is the first, God so loved the world. John 20 is the second, and here's what it says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? Here's the whole reason why John writes. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John doesn't record every single miracle that Jesus does. John doesn't even write in a way to arrange things historically in the exact order in which they've all occurred. John writes accurately and truthfully, but he does so in a way in order to present Jesus for one particular reason, that you might believe. Believe. Believe what? Believe, according to this verse, that Jesus really is the Son of God, believing that he really is the Savior who came to die for your sins. In fact, this word believe is all throughout the Gospel of John. Let me give you a few examples. It's just remarkable how often this word appears, how central it is to John's thinking and the way in which he platforms the truth connected to what it means to believe. Here's the first one in John chapter 1 and verse 11. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Here's another, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Give you a few more. In John 6, verse 40, it says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John 6, verse 67, Jesus said to the disciples, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him and said, I love this, Lord, to, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then Peter says this, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus famously said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So I, I trust that you get the point. 
over and over throughout this gospel, John's aim is to help you to believe. It is to show you the evidence of why you should believe. But here's what I don't want to assume. I don't want to assume that you know what the word believe actually means. In the Bible, the word believe is very closely tied to other words like to trust, to rely upon, to accept, or to put one's faith in. Particularly if you're not yet a Christian and, or you're trying to figure out the claims of the Bible, I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say because the description that I'm gonna give you of what you believe in is what makes the difference between being a non-Christian or a Christian, or to be more specific of what it means to be in a position of unforgiveness versus a position of being forgiven by God. What do we believe? Well, in the Bible, to believe means that you accept what Jesus said and you accept what the Bible says to be true. That you believe that Jesus really is the Son of God. You believe that he died for your sins. You believe that he was raised from the dead. So to believe means that you accept what the Bible says about Jesus, but here's the thing, it also means that you believe what the Bible says about you, about me. Namely, that we are sinners, that we have fallen short of God's glory, that we want to do life on our own. We want God's rules to get away from us. To believe also means that we stop believing our narrative, the truths that we create in our mind to justify ourselves and to sort of prop up our own righteousness and to balance the scales of comparison. To believe means that we don't just believe, but we believe in something, namely we believe in Christ, that his death and resurrection provide a way for sinners to be forgiven. And in this way, to believe means that I take refuge inside Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul often refers to people who are Christians as being in Christ. We run to him from the storm of our sin. I saw a news report this week of the tornadoes that rolled through the south and a, a man who had built in his home a, a, a safe room and his entire home was destroyed and the only thing that remained was a four foot by four foot safe room. The, the house was completely leveled and yet there it was, this safe room. He put his whole family in that safe room and they were safe from the tornado storm that rolled through their neighborhood. And this is how the Bible describes those who are in Christ. We are safe from the judgment that our sins deserve and believing in Jesus means that we run to him, we run in him. We take his death and say that's what counts for me? To believe in Jesus means that we trust in him, not ourselves, that we confess our allegiance to Christ as we renounce our own sins, that we turn from self-confidence and we turn to Jesus' confidence. So you need to understand that John doesn't commend belief alone. It's not like he just says believe, believe anything. No, 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 the real issue is whether or not you believe in Christ. So belief in and of itself isn't commendable. In fact, the book of James tells us in James chapter two that even the demons believe. So what really matters is what you believe in. Faith in Christ as savior, as king, and as Lord, that's what really matters. And then to what end? Verse 31 says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
And here it is, that by believing you may have life in his name. John writes, so that you can be forgiven now by trusting in Christ, but he also writes, so that your eternal destiny is fixed in the kindness and the love of God as he applies the death of Jesus to you. The gospel is good news because through Christ, it offers to us reconciliation between God and mankind. And for those who trust in Jesus, it means that God and sinful people are brought back together again. And this is how the entire Bible ends with this picture. When the Bible says this in Revelation, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So John's aim is to show you how that can be your story. For you to be reconciled to your creator for you to have your sins forgiven, for you to have the peace of God rule your heart because you know all my sins have been covered by the person and work of Jesus Christ. So friend, I'm wrapping up the book of John. This may be the first message you've ever heard out of the book of John. This may be the 55th message that you've heard on the gospel of John. And can I just appeal to you again that if you have not turned from your sins and put your trust in Christ, why not make today that very day? Why not right where you are in your living room or in your apartment or maybe you're watching this in a car somewhere or, or, or maybe you're just all by yourself or maybe you're with a group of people that are near you or close to you. Why not just the very day for you to cry out and say to Jesus, I believe that you're alive. I believe you're the son of God. I know that I'm a sinner and I come to you, Jesus, and I'm asking for you to be my Savior and Lord. Why not today make the day when you turn and become a follower of Jesus? The whole reason why John writes this is to that end. The whole book is written for that purpose, that you might believe, that you might live. Now, there's two other charges that we see in this text. There are important, but this is the central truth that the whole gospel surrounds, which is why I've taken time to reemphasize it again. The second thing that we find is in regards to Jesus' engagement with Peter, and we see a call here for Peter and all of the disciples of Jesus to serve Jesus faithfully. So that's the second point. It is to serve Jesus faithfully. So this book ends with a call for us to serve Jesus faithfully. In chapter 21, we see that seven disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee, or also called the Sea of Tiberias. We see Simon Peter in verse two, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, two of them, and two other disciples are together, and Peter says to these disciples, while they're in Galilee, I'm going fishing. Before Peter was a follower of Jesus, he was a fisherman. And so he says to these fellow disciples that he's going to go fishing. Some commentators think that this is an evidence of Peter's sort of backsliding from his calling. I don't, I don't think that's the case, and there are many other biblical scholars who think the same thing. But rather, what we have here is an example of Peter waiting for the instructions from the Lord. He was told to go to Galilee. He was there like he was commanded in Mark 14. 
And while he's out fishing, and we'll see the connection to another story here in a moment, we, we see that Jesus, in verse 4, is standing at the shore. The disciples hadn't caught anything all night. And he says to them in verse 5, children, and that's kind of a generic way to refer to people, like we might use the term like friends. Hey, friends, or hey, guys. He says, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And verse seven says, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out his outer, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Once again, we see Peter just passionate. I gotta get to Jesus. He jumps in the sea and starts swimming towards Jesus. The other disciples are left to collect the fish. What's interesting, and I think one of the reasons John puts this in here is that in Luke chapter five, we find that Jesus calls the disciples, Peter, James, and John, to be disciples in a similar moment as they're fishing. And so here we see sort of the bookends of their life. They were called as fishermen, where Jesus says to them, I will make you fishers of men. And here we see Jesus showing up as they're fishing again in Galilee. In verse nine, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now notice here, here's Jesus, the resurrected Christ, who has prepared breakfast for the disciples. It's, I think, intended to be a compassionate concern for others that Jesus is demonstrating here. He says to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught, and so they bring some of the 155 or 153 fish, and Jesus, in verse 12, says to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was the third time, the text says, that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And now we come to a very important section. In verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus asks Peter this question about his love for Jesus three times. It's likely that this is not the first time that Peter and Jesus have had a conversation or maybe some sort of reconciliation. In fact, other texts in the Bible like 1 Corinthians 15, 5 and Luke 24, 34 indicate that there was some other appearance that Jesus had with Simon Peter. This is not about the restoration of their relationship as much as it is about the commissioning or the recommissioning, if you will, of Peter to serve Jesus faithfully. He asks him three times. First, do you love me more than these? He's referring to the other disciples. Why is he asking him that? Because Peter, in a rather dark moment just before Jesus was arrested, had bragged that even if all of these other disciples run away, I'm not going to. And that's when Jesus told Peter, you will deny me three times before the, crock, before the rooster crows. Peter boasted that he'd be different than all of the disciples. So Jesus asks him, do you love me more than these? Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then notice what Jesus says, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. 
Jesus connects Peter's affection to Jesus with the command to take care of the lambs. We're the lambs. The lambs are the other followers of Jesus. He asks him again in verse 16, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He then said to him, tend my sheep. And then he says in verse 17, a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And at this time, Peter is grieved because he has said to him, now the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus wants Peter to understand something, and it's important for us to understand as well that Peter's love for Jesus was to be directly expressed in his care for the sheep. It's no wonder that in Peter's epistle, 1 Peter, in chapter five, he talks about what it means to shepherd the church of God. Here's what he says. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So Peter exhorts elders in order for them to shepherd the flock of God. You know what this tells us? This tells us that Jesus loves his church. He loves the people in his church. He loves the expression of the church. He loves College Park Church. He loves all gospel preaching churches in our city, in our state, in our world. In fact, he loves them so much that when the Apostle Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus took it personally. He appears to Saul and he says to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because for Jesus, this is a personal issue. He loves those sheep, he loves you. He paid his life for you, he bought you, he rescued you, he knows you. John wants you to see God loves the world and Jesus in this last moment is giving Peter this commission. If you love me, you will love the people who love me, Peter. If you really love me, then you're gonna love people who are near you, Peter. So Matthew's gospel ends with this commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to go in the world and make disciples. And that's a really important emphasis, an emphasis on evangelism and disciple making. And John's gospel ends with a mission to care for the sheep. And faithful churches, faithful pastors, faithful Christians need to understand that our role is both to evangelize and to care for the sheep. This was one of the reasons, the compelling reasons, that about five years ago we sort of reformatted our understanding of elder governance and divided our congregation up into various parishes and helped us to really take more practically the call to shepherd the flock of God. We added deacons into the mix just in time for this COVID crisis. And now that very operating system of shepherding is the very thing that's serving us so well during this time. But you need to know, friends, that the elders and the deacons are not the only ones called to care for one another. It is the calling of every Christian. Every person who loves Jesus must love his sheep. If you don't love his sheep, there's no way you can love Jesus. Look at what John says in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I don't know about you, but I need that word in week six of this intense environment. My guess is that your life is a little bit like mine, where the newness of the stay-at-home order has worn off, tensions are easier to surface, and can I just remind you that if you love Jesus, you will love one another. If you love Jesus, you will care for one another. Jesus calls Peter to love him and to serve him. How? By loving and serving, not just the church organizationally, but by loving and serving the church individually. Feed my lambs. So elders and deacons, brothers and sisters, we have to keep at it. Small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, let's not lose heart. Technology and support people and communications folks, what you do matters in helping us to be able to care for one another. It's all part of shepherding God's flock and it's the way, not just that we exist as a church or function, but it's the way that we love Jesus together. So what does faithfully following Jesus look like? It looks like finding new and creative ways to shepherd the flock of God. So here's an assignment for you. I want you to think this week about somebody who might be on the margins, somebody who's a part of our church, who might feel lonely, who might not be doing as well as you are, who might financially be in a difficult strait, or who, who might be in a position where this was old weeks ago, and what could you do, not just to care for them, but to demonstrate your love for Jesus by caring for them? My hope and prayer is that there'll be thousands of people who come to faith in Christ because of this environment that we're in. I'm also hopeful that when we come through this, people will come out of it and say, man, I love my church. And not the organization, the bylaws, the doctrinal statement, the facility, all that's important at one level. But at the end of the day, I love the people of this church because I saw how they fed the lambs and tended the lambs. So we're called to believe that we may live. Secondly, to serve Jesus faithfully. Here's the third thing. And that is to follow God's sovereign plan. The book ends with Jesus talking with Peter. This is interesting. This is how John ends the entire book, right here. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Oh, sorry, I'm behind a little bit on the text here. In verse 18, that's where I need to be. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. So Jesus is in effect telling Peter here what kind of death he's going to die. And verse 19 makes this very clear. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. We believe that when John's gospel was written, Peter had already 
died. In fact, if church history and tradition is correct, he was martyred about 30 years after this moment. What's also interesting is now Peter, for the rest of his life, lives knowing that he's going to be martyred. And just think of the book of Acts and the way in which Peter conducts himself. He doesn't know when the end will come, but here he is, faithfully following Jesus throughout the the course of his life, and Jesus has a plan for Peter's life. But what's interesting is after he said this to Peter, he simply said to him, follow me. And Peter turned, they may have gotten up and began walking, Because the text says he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, that's John, and Peter said to him, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And Peter saw him, when Peter saw him, rather, he said to Jesus, here's what I mean, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the sayings spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So what does Jesus do here? He tells Peter about his end, and when Peter asks about John's future, Jesus gently corrects Peter and says, don't worry about him. You just follow me. Jesus calls Peter to follow the plan that God has for him. He invites Peter to follow him with a single-minded devotion. Don't worry about the plan of God for other people, including John. Peter, your singular focus is simply this. You need to follow Jesus. Friend, I trust that you know that if you're a follower of Jesus, that your mission is simply the same Each of us in our lifetime have to determine what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully. And think of it. God in his sovereign wisdom has placed you on earth, in this nation, in this church, for this season that we're in. God is not surprised. God is right on his plan. And God has a sovereign purpose for every single one of our lives. The disciples would experience this. Emperors would change. Some cities would receive them. Others would hate them. Some religious leaders loved them. Others wanted to kill them. The disciples dealt with healthy churches. They dealt with dysfunctional churches. They trained up new leaders. They confronted false teachers. And yet through it all, their mission remained the same. And it was this. I need to believe and I need to follow Jesus. Christian, that is your mission. Believe and follow Jesus. And those two things, those two pillars of John's gospel 
have helped to serve the church through all sorts of storms and all sorts of difficulties and all sorts of uncertainty. And that is still our mission. That's our church's mission. That's your mission. That every day you get up and simply your mindset is this, I'm gonna believe and I'm gonna follow Jesus. I don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. I don't know what next week's gonna bring. I don't know what next month or next year's gonna bring, but here's what I'm called to do. I gotta believe today and follow Jesus. I shouldn't worry about anyone else's plan. I gotta simply know what is God calling me to do, which is to believe and to follow him. And then this gospel ends with these words. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But John wrote this book so you could believe and in believing have life through his name so that you could believe and follow Jesus. Believe and follow Jesus. pray together. Lord Jesus, we have so benefited from this glorious book. It's sad to see it go. We thank you for the way that it calls us to believe. And God, in a very simple way, there are some who just simply today need to believe. Believe your word is true. Believe you are for us. Believe your promises. And so on this Lord's Day, help us to, Lord, not be guilty of unbelief. Strengthen our belief, we pray. And then help us to follow you, to be like Jesus, to incorporate the gospel and what it means to be in Christ every day of our life. And then, Lord, today, for those who hear this message who are not yet converted, would you call them to faith in you? This very moment, would you have them turn from their sins and put their trust in Christ, that their story could be, I believed in Jesus. I believed, and I followed him. And so, Lord, Take this book and let its truths, its stories, its admonitions, its warnings be a sure guide for us in these challenging days. Oh Lord, help us to believe and help us to follow. Help us to keep it simple. Believe and follow Jesus. That's it. Help us to do that, we pray, by your spirit and through your grace. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.